This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Once you have read some of Edward Gorey's books, it is almost impossible to mistake his work for anyone else's unless maybe they are intentionally working in the style of Edward Gorey. His black and white pen and ink illustrations look almost like engravings. They're just full of hatching and cross-hatching. The words are lettered by hand, and the stories a lot of times unfold through either rhyming couplets or limericks or some other verse. The plots a lot of times end really ambiguously, or they never resolve at all. It's this gloomy, foreboding, typically Edwardian world that's populated by bats and cats and odd creatures and grown-ups who are usually in very glamorous clothing and a lot of children who somehow come to harm uh in one of <laughs> in one of his most well-known books which is an alphabet book called the Gashley Crumb Tinies M is for Maud who was swept out to sea N is for Neville who died of ennui the other tinies are assaulted by bears, they're sucked dry by leeches, they're run through with awls. It's all very darkly whimsical. So if you don't know much about Edward Gorey's life, you might imagine the person who did this to be a dour Englishman with the peak of his career, maybe sometime in the 1920s or 30s, whose own childhood was marked with a series of tragic deaths. But Edward Gorey was none of those things. No, he's, he's a delightful. He's who we're going to talk about today. Uh, Edward Gorey, nicknamed Ted, was born Edward St. John Gorey on February 22nd, 1925, in Chicago, Illinois. He was the only child of Edward Leo Gorey and Helen Garvey, who divorced when he was 11. His father later remarried singer and guitarist Karina Mura, who was most well-known for being the guitar player at Rick's Café Americain in the movie Casablanca. Gorey's parents remarried one another in 1952. Already it's kind of whimsical and kooky. <laughs> I know. 
The family had predominantly Irish roots, with ancestors on both sides immigrating to the United States in the mid to late 19th century. Although his father was Roman Catholic and his mother was Episcopalian, Gorey himself wasn't particularly religious, and later on in his life he would say that if he was anything, he was a Taoist. He was also quite precocious, and he started drawing before he was even two years old. His oldest surviving drawing, called The Sausage Train, is of the trains that passed by his grandparents' house in Chicago, and he drew that when he was about 18 months old. And this is full of oblong shapes that are recognizably trains, but they were also very definitely drawn by a small child, so it's not like he just whipped out realistic drawings and people went, Wunderkind! No, he, I mean, it's, uh, it is starting, startlingly adept for an 18-month-old, but still obviously a child's drawing. By three, Edward Gorey had taught himself to read, and by five or six, sometimes he says he would say seven in interviews, it, it varied a little bit, he had read two books whose influence on his own work is really obvious, Alice in Wonderland and Dracula. So if you ever read an Edward Gorey book and said, man, this is like if Alice in Wonderland had a baby with Dracula. You were exactly right. That was right. And although Gorey described his upbringing as very ordinary Midwestern childhood, in reality, he moved around a lot. By the time he left for college, he had had at least 12 different addresses, including staying with relatives in Florida for a brief stretch after his parents' divorce. He was overall a good student, and he was bright enough that he skipped first grade. But sometimes, after changing schools, his work would waver a little as he adjusted to a new environment. By eighth grade, Gorey was drawing illustrations for the school yearbook, as well as participating in typing club, art club, Shakespeare club, and glee club, along with serving as assembly president. He also, sometime in those years, learned to play the piano. The most stable period of Gorey's education before college was when he was at Chicago's Francis W. Parker School. He enrolled there in the ninth grade, and he graduated on June 5th, 1942. And while there, he was clearly interested in art, hanging out with a clique of other artistically inclined students, and participating in his first school art show in 1939. Reportedly, his senior yearbook had no photo of him, but a blank spot where he'd draw himself in when people asked. Gorey was offered several college scholarships when he graduated from high school, but World War II was underway by the time he got out of school and he was drafted into the United States Army. He was only able to take a couple of classes at the Art Institute of Chicago before reporting for duty. From 1943 until after the end of the war, he served stateside as a clerk, spending most of those years at Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah. This was a testing ground for biological and chemical weapons and their countermeasures. Gorey did not talk a whole lot about his World War II service, although when it did come up in interviews, he virtually always mentioned the Dugway Sheep Incident, which took place much later. That was a 1968 incident in which thousands of sheep were killed in western Utah, purportedly by nerve agents from the facility. But it was while in the military that Gorey started writing plays as a way to occupy his time. After being discharged from the Army, Gorey enrolled at Harvard, which was paid for by the GI Bill, where he majored not in art, but in French literature. 
Even though he wasn't majoring in art, he continued to both write and draw. He published poems and stories in the campus magazine's signature, as well as illustrating for the magazine and for other publications. At Harvard, Gorey became friends and for a couple years roommates with poet Frank O'Hara. They decked out their dorm suite with rented furniture and they made it into their own little salon. Poet Donald Hall, another Harvard graduate, is quoted in Harvard Magazine as saying, quote, they gave the best parties. O'Hara was definitely the bigger partier of the two young men, though, so they eventually drifted apart a bit, uh, and this would be an ongoing theme in Gorey's life. He was charming and generous once you got close to him, but he often preferred to be more solitary than social. Gorey graduated from Harvard in 1950, and he stayed in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a couple of years after that, working in bookstores and helping to start the Poets' Theater. The Poets' Theater's founders and original members were all students or recent graduates from Harvard, including Allison Lurie, John Ashbery, and Donald Hall. They would stage their own and revival works of poetic drama. Even though he had been writing poems and since high school and plays since his time in the Army, a lot of Gorey's work with the Poets' Theater was more as an artist and a designer for both the stage and the production's programs and promotional materials. You can still see like scans of old programs that he drew in these years immediately after he graduated. Gorey stayed in Massachusetts for a couple of years, mainly working part-time in bookstores, before he made the move to New York City, and that marked a huge shift in his life and career, and we're going to talk about that more after we pause for a sponsor break. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. While Edward Gorey liked his work with the Poets Theater, he wasn't able to support himself working part-time at Cambridge bookstores. In late 1952, he designed a couple of book covers as a freelancer for Barbara Zimmerman and Jason Epstein, who he knew from Harvard. Epstein soon offered him a job at the art department at Doubleday Anchor in New York City. 
He started out doing paste-up and corrections of other people's work, and eventually started designing book covers. He was good at it, and he was efficient, which left him time to work on his own projects and to do additional work as a commercial illustrator. In his own work, he was primarily drawing in black and white because he knew from his day job that it would be hard to find a publisher for full-color illustrated books at the time. But the covers that he was drawing while at Anchor usually were in color, often with subtle, muted tones. There are people who have written whole papers about Edward Gorey's use of color on the book covers he was drawing for <laughs> publishers, uh, especially since his own his own books are so often in black and white. Gorey's first book, which was The Unstrung Harp, or Mr. Earbrass Writes a Novel, came out in 1953. This is about a frustrated man trying to write a novel. It's the closest to an autobiographical work, uh, probably, of, of all of his work. The Listing Attic followed in 1954. Neither of these books sold particularly well, though. And later on, Gorey bought up copies that he found on remainder tables to give them as fr- to friends as presents. Soon after moving to New York, Gorey found one of his truly great loves, and that was the New York City Ballet, under the helm of its founder, George Balanchine. Gorey had been to the ballet before. He had gone as a child in Chicago. But after attending a few performances in the 1952-1953 season, he started attending more and more of Balanchine's productions until, starting in 1956, he was attending literally every performance. This took dedication, apart from the obvious that that is a lot of ballet to attend. At Christmas time, it meant attending nearly 40 performances of The Nutcracker. (laughs) I read an interview with him where the interviewer was like, please explain this to me. How are you able to sit through 39 (laughs) performances of The Nutcracker? (laughs) (laughs) Here's why I'm laughing so hard. I feel like should one day someone attempt to write a biography of me, they would be like, and she saw Star Wars 37 times (laughs) in the theater. (laughs) So I understand a little bit how you could go see the Nutcracker 40 times in a row. Well, it was 40 times in a row for like years and years in a row. Like he did it every season. And then he saved all of his ticket stubs from all of these trips to the ballet. He loved the ballet so much that in 1970, he wrote The Lavender Leotard, or Going a Lot to the New York City Ballet. And this initially came out in Playbill as part of the celebration for the ballet's 50th anniversary. When The Lavender Leotard came out as its own standalone book, Edward Gorey hand-painted covers for its first-run edition because the printer had not been able to match the exact right shade of lavender. This is how dedicated he was to the New York City Ballet. I love him so much. Uh, Gorey wrote one other book explicitly about ballet during his career, The Gilded Bat, which came out in 1966. But the influence of ballet is clear in his other works as well. The people he draws often have turned out toes, elongated, extended poses, and even when something terrible is happening to them, a sort of graceful presence on the page. On nights when Gorey wasn't going to the New York City Ballet, he was often at the opera or the movies, and he became a very recognizable presence around New York City. He typically wore a full-length fur coat over jeans, a shirt, and Converse sneakers, and he wore a lot of very heavy jewelry, especially rings, a lot of which was made out of iron or brass. He was a very recognizable person. So if you want to throw together a fun Halloween costume, go as Edward Gorey. <laughs> 
it's a pretty easy one to put together, and it's kind of nerdy and cool. Uh, he also started accumulating the books that would eventually grow into his own personal library during this time. He loved to read, and he tended to come back home with a book anytime he left the house. A particular favorite was Agatha Christie, who he had been reading and rereading since childhood. He also loved Jane Austen, describing her as his idol. Another favorite was Anthony Trollope, although he did not revisit Trollope's work very much as he got older. He also loved poetry, particularly the work of W.H. Auden. He did not love everything he read, though, and he was very candid about authors and actors and anyone else that he did not particularly like. So he made no secret of the fact that he despised nearly everything by Henry James. In spite of the fact that he had drawn the cover art for some of Henry James's books, there is a little sign in the Edward Gorey house today that says, please know Henry James in the Edward Gorey house. (laughs) I love it so much. Gorey's New York City apartment also became home to a number of cats, many of them named after characters in Murasaki Shikibu's 11th century Japanese novel, The Tale of Genji, another lifelong favorite work of literature. Throughout this time in New York City, Gorey was writing and illustrating his own books. Even though most people remember him for his art, he really thought of himself as a writer first. With every line, he would think, can this make a drawing? But he didn't actually start illustrating until he was satisfied with the words. And he revised as he went. He would get one sentence exactly right before he moved on to the next one. In 1957, Doubleday published Gorey's The Doubtful Guest, which carries a lot of the hallmarks of his later work. A peculiar guest who looks a little like a penguin shows up at a mansion inhabited by a family that looks somewhere between Victorian and Edwardian. Whatever it is, the guest is ill-mannered and weird, and it has been bothering the family for 17 years at the end of the book. The very strange The Object Lesson came out a year later. I tried to figure out how to sum up the object lesson in a sentence. It's not really possible. It involves, <laughs> like, some tongs and a prosthetic <laughs> leg. It's there's just, there's just, it's very surreal. It's one of the things that people point to when they talk about surrealist influences on Edward Gorey. So in 1959, the doubtful guest caught the eye of Edmund Wilson. He wrote about it in an article called The Albums of Edward Gorey in the December issue of The New Yorker. This brought Edward Gorey a lot more attention than he had before, and it was the first time a lot of people had ever heard of him. Although at this point, he was creating so many book covers for Doubleday Anchor that they had almost certainly seen something he had drawn before. 1959 was also when Gorey left Doubleday Anchor to serve as art director at Looking Glass Library, which set out to repackage classic works for children. In addition to being the art director, he helped select some of the 28 books that were ultimately published, and he did illustrations for a few of them. The most famous was his illustrated War of the Worlds, which came out in 1960. He also illustrated a book of ghost stories called The Haunted Looking Glass, and he also chose the stories themselves for that one. Looking Glass Library folded in 1962, and Gorey started doing some work for other publishers as well as working freelance, including designing advertisements. 
He also started granting permission for his existing illustrations to be used in other work. One example from later in his career is an end-of-life planning booklet called Before I Go, You Should Know, My Funeral and Final Plans, which was distributed by Funeral Consumers Alliance. It sort of seems perfect for Edward Gorey to have agreed it to. Does. <laughs> uh, also in 1962, the much beloved, the Gashley Crumb Tinies, debuted as part of a three-volume work called The Vinegar Works, three volumes of moral instruction, which also included The Insect God and The West Wing. The Gashley Crumb Tinies has never been out of print. That same year, 1962 was a big year, Edward Gorey and Francis Steloff launched the Fantod Press. Steloff was founder of the Gotham Bookmart, which was a bookstore and literary haven that had become the primary distribution point for a lot of Gorey's work. Gotham Bookmart is where Gorey sat to hand paint all those copies of the Lavender Leotard. And when it opened an art gallery in 1967, he was one of its first exhibitors. Gorey and Steloff launched Fantod Press together because Gorey had trouble finding a publisher for a lot of what he had written, and he wanted a way to publish it himself. The press's first book was The Beastly Baby, which was the first work Gorey had ever tried to publish. It was one of the many books that came out under a pseudonym that was an anagram or near anagram of Gorey's own name. In this case, Ogdred Weary. The Beastly Baby features a big, sticky, shrieking, gurgling baby that does horrible things like burn the upholstery with acid. According to Gory, it made people so angry that mothers tore it up and mailed the pieces back to him. I have always contended that seeing this book as a kid is one of the reasons I never wanted children. <laughs> In the late 1960s, Gory started spending more time on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, transporting his cats with him back and forth between there and New York City. He was always in New York during ballet season, but eventually he would move out to the Cape permanently. We are going to talk about that after another quick sponsor break. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. The richest, most powerful place on Earth. On an epic scale. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. A vast empire. Threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place, or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. 
Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few, and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. had relatives who lived on Cape Cod, so he had visited there from time to time over the years. As he started to spend more time there in the 60s and 70s, he got involved in local theaters all along the Cape, designing promotional materials and costumes, staging work of his own, some of it quite experimental. He continued to do some of the same work in New York City as well. In 1973, Gorey designed the set for a production of Dracula that was to be staged on Nantucket off the coast of Cape Cod. When he was drawing for books, Gorey usually worked at about the same size as the finished printed product. For this set, which looks like a black-and-white cross-hatched illustration from one of his books, he drew larger images that were then blown up for the stage. This same staging opened on Broadway on October 20th, 1977, where it ran until January of 1980. It was nominated for three Tony Awards, one for the sets and the costumes, which, which Gorey had also designed. And it was also, uh, it was also nominated for Best Revival. Gorey won the Tony for his costume work, and the production also won the Tony for Best Revival. But it always really bothered him that the sets had not won as well. They are quite striking. It's one of those things that happens where you shrug, where it doesn't make sense. (laughs) We see it all the time. Apparently it rankled him. (laughs) I can understand that. A musical adaptation of Gory's own work, Gory Stories, appeared on Broadway in 1978 after getting its start at the University of Kentucky. Gory adored this production, which had a brief run off-Broadway in January and February, along with 16 previews. It officially opened on Broadway on October 30th, and it closed the very same night. The New York Times and Daily News had been on strike for months, and it just had not gotten much publicity. There's a, there are, of course, other stagings of Gory's work or place he was related with, but <laughs> Dracula on Broadway and Gory Stories are the two Broadway productions. Gory spent more and more time on Cape Cod in the late 1970s and early 1980s. He started easing up on his patronage of the New York City Ballet as George Balanchine started passing some of his leadership onto his successors. When Balanchine died in 1983, Gory decided it was time to think about leaving New York entirely. At first, he moved to Barnstable, Massachusetts, where he stayed in a house belonging to relatives. Then he moved into a 200-year-old sea captain's home in Yarmouth Port that he'd bought with his Dracula royalties, and he nicknamed it the Elephant House. The Elephant House became home to Gory, his cats, and his collections for the rest of his life. In terms of cats, he typically had five or six. He thought six cats were a lot harder to keep up with than five, and seven was far too many. This is exactly my numbers. (laughs) Six is where I'm maxed out. (laughs) 
five is kind of perfect. Yeah, he had a whole thing about when when there are six cats, they somehow form this phalanx of cat. <laughs> and then five is like not not having so much of a supernatural level of combined cat intelligence. But seven is right out. In my experience, this is all entirely accurate. Uh, and for collections, uh, moving from a tiny New York apartment to an entire house meant that he could spend his weekends poking around yard sales and looking for treasures. And he collected all kinds of things. There were, of course, books of which he had approximately 25,000 by the end of his life, but also cheese graters, salt and pepper shakers, knickknacks, interesting rocks, toys, games, art, including some terrifically bad art, on and on. He was often inspired by the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi, which ties to beauty found in the simple, the impermanent, and the mundane. His time on Cape Cod really contributed to the perception that Edward Gorey was a recluse. In New York City, he had gone out almost every night, especially when the ballet was performing, always wearing this very recognizable fur coat and jewelry. But after he moved into the Elephant House, he stayed home a lot more. In addition to working, he read a vast number of books, and he also watched a whole lot of TV. He spoke often for his love of things like Doctor Who, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and daytime soap operas. Gorey's work is also on TV. In 1980, he worked with Derek Lamb to animate the introduction to Mystery from Boston Public Television, which for some people was their first introduction to Edward Gorey's work. Often, while he was watching all this television, he'd make little beanbag creatures filled with rice, recognizable animals like bats, frogs, and elephants, as well as characters like Figbash, a long-armed creature from The Raging Tide or The Black Doll's Imbroglio, who would later also have his own alphabet book. Some of this perception that Edward Gorey was reclusive came from interviews as well. He could be quite charming and gregarious in interviews, but really only if the interviewer was asking him interesting questions. If you sat down with Edward Gorey with a list of boring, predictable, obvious questions, you might get a bunch of one-word or evasive answers in response, especially if other interviewers before you had already asked those same boring, predictable, obvious things. So if you walked into an interview with Edward Gorey and you ask him, why do you like to draw such macabre pictures when he had been asked that question and also hated being called macabre in the first place? You might get the impression he didn't like talking to people. <laughs> to add to all this solitude and curmudgeonliness, Gory always lived alone and he never had a serious romantic relationship. Combined with an often campy way of speaking and presenting himself, this led people naturally to wonder about his sexual orientation. In a 1980 interview with Boston Magazine, Lisa Solod asked him what his sexual preferences were, and he answered, quote, well, I'm neither one thing nor the other, particularly. Later in that same interview, she asked, is the sexlessness of your books a product of your asexuality? And he answered, I would say so. Although every now and then, someone will say my books are seething with repressed sexuality. These ideas came up in other interviews as well. For example, in 1984, he told Richard Dyer of Boston Globe magazine, quote, Sometimes I ask myself why I never ended up with somebody for the rest of my life, and then I realized that obviously I didn't want to or I would have. So it's definitely true that Gorey led a solitary life, particularly once he moved to Cape Cod. 
And he tended not to answer the door or the phone or the mail, although that led to him feeling guilty about unopened piles of fan mail, which he once called, thank you for being you, crap. (laughs) He didn't like to be flattered or fussed over or bothered. He didn't want to talk about interpretations of his work because he liked the idea of people's imaginations having their own possibilities. I'm just putting it out there. I will read thank you for being you, crap, any day of the week. At the same time, though, it is really not accurate to think of Edward Gorey as a hermit or a recluse. He gave most of those little beanbag creatures that he made away to his friends. Even as he developed a cult fan following, he was listed in the phone book, and he was generous with his time when fans ran into him out in public. If he literally knocked on the door, he might not answer it, but if he did answer it expecting it to be someone he knew, he would talk to you. He ate out almost every day, with Jack's Outback Restaurant being a particular favorite. He did a lot of work that required him to be social, particularly working with community theaters all up and down Cape Cod, staging plays and working on sets and costumes. Edward Gorey wrote and published books continually from 1953 all the way to the end of his life. He created more than 100 books of his own and also designed the covers for hundreds of others, as well as handling the design and typography for at least 100 more. His illustrations accompanied the writings of T.S. Eliot, John Updike, Lewis Carroll, Virginia Woolf, H.G. Wells, Bram Stoker, and Gilbert and Sullivan, among others. My introduction to T.S. Eliot was actually an edition of Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, illustrated by Edward Gorey, which... Edward Gorey's cats are a lot friendlier and goofier than maybe anything else that he drew. Like, they often have these big, doofy smiles on their faces, and they look really loungy and cuddly. And so I got this impression that T.S. Eliot was like a... a little, little snug bug. <laughs> yeah. And then I got to college, and I had to read The Wasteland, and I was like, what is this? Where are the kitties? <laughs> Uh, I still have that book. So because Gory's original books are illustrated and they often feature children as characters and because about 20 of these original books are alphabet books, sometimes people think of him as a children's author. And because terrible things often are happening to these children's these children in the books, he's also often imagined to have hated children. But really, in his adult life, he didn't know any children. He didn't have any antipathy for them at all. Every time this came up in an interview, he consistently would be like, no, I don't actually know any kids. (laughs) While many of his books were suitable for most ages, others had a decidedly adult twist. For example, he illustrated The Recently Deflowered Girl, The Right Thing to Say on Every Dubious Occasion, published under the pseudonym of Miss Hyacinth Phipps. It's a faux advice manual written by Mel Juffy for what ladies should say after being deflowered in a variety of odd and sometimes awful situations. Gorey also wrote and illustrated The Curious Sofa, a pornographic work by Ogdred Weary, which contains no nudity or explicit language, but also points the imagination in a very particular direction. Today, many, but not all, of Gory's books are available in collections with names like Amphigory and Amphigory 2. The first of these came out in 1972. 
Although Gorey himself preferred his books as they were originally printed and bound, today a lot of them are out of print outside of these collections. You can definitely find a lot of standalone books too, but there are things that are in those collections that it's it's hard to find in any other way. Gorey died on April 15th, 2000 at the age of 75 following a heart attack that he had had a few days before. He was cremated with part of his ashes sent to be buried with his family, part floated out to sea on a raft made of branches from the magnolia tree that grows outside of Elephant House, and a small part saved to be scattered in the yard where the cats were to be buried after the last of their deaths. He left most of his estate to the Edward Gorey Charitable Trust, which funds animal welfare organizations. Edward Gorey was actually really interested in animal welfare, particularly cats and bats and in general, uh, the welfare of animals. He actually gave up wearing all those famous fur coats as he became more interested in animal welfare later on in his life. When a family of raccoons invaded the elephant house, he let them keep living there, almost as penance for having worn a raccoon coat for so long. By the time he died, he had amassed a collection of 21 fur coats, which the the foundation started off selling at a rate of one per year and then sold the rest at auction in 2010 as a fundraiser. In 2002, the Highland Street Foundation purchased the Edward Gorey home, and today it is the Edward Gorey House Museum, which is open seasonally. Edward Gorey's influence continued to grow in the last decades of his life and after his death. In a 2011 article in the New York Times, Daniel Handler, the author of A Series of Unfortunate Events, which is published under the name Lemony Snicket, said, quote, When I was first writing A Series of Unfortunate Events, I was wandering around everywhere saying, I am a complete ripoff of Edward Gorey. And everyone said, who's that? Now everyone says, that's right. You are a complete ripoff of Edward Gorey. Uh, That delights me. (laughs) Daniel Handler dragging himself cracks me up a little bit. The first volume of that series of books came out the year before Edward Gorey's death. Neil Gaiman had actually said that he wanted Edward Gorey to illustrate his book Coraline, but Gorey died the day that Gaiman finished writing it. I don't actually know if Tim Burton has ever specifically cited Edward Gorey as an influence, but a lot of people writing about Tim Burton make that connection. Well, the style is very similar of his drawings, yeah. for sure. Um, so whether he said it or not, I think you can't discount it. Like, there's a very valid connection there. Uh, and uh, Tracy included this quote in her outline to end with. Quote, for some reason, my mission in life is to make everybody as uneasy as possible. I think we should all be as uneasy as possible because that's what the world is like. And that was uh, Edward Gorey is quoted by Richard Dyer in Boston Globe magazine in 1984. We'll also put a link in our show notes just for fun from the great, sadly, no longer actively in production uh website the toast called how to tell if you're in an edward gory book uh which is delightful that is edward gory do you have a little bit of listener mail to go with this episode i sure do have some listener mail this email is from brandon it is about amin pasha and brandon says hello stuff you missed in history class then says some nice things about the show before going on to say i know it has been nearly a month since you first published the podcast on amin pasha but I still wanted to write to you about it. I currently am working for an NGO in Gulu, Uganda. 
Gulu is in northern Uganda. It is only about 100 kilometers from the border with South Sudan. He sent a photo. Near Gulu, there is an old fort that was used by Samuel Baker when he was warring against Arab slave, slave traders. Samuel Baker was an English explorer who worked in the area in the 1860s and early 70s. He was also, interestingly enough, the person who founded Equatoria in modern-day South Sudan. I thoroughly enjoyed investigating the names of the places that Amin Pasha visited when he was in East Africa. Now I have new places I want to visit while living here. If I'm being honest, I've been trying to find a connection to one of the podcasts so that I could write to your show. I love listening to it while I'm driving back in the States or lying under a fan on a hot day in Gulu. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you so much, Brandon, for writing this note. I love to hear from listeners who are living in some of the places that, from our point of view, are more remote to us. Um, that's always awesome. So thank you again for writing that note. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History. Our Twitter and our Tumblr and our Pinterest and our Instagram and all those things. Everything is under in History. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where we have show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever done together. You'll actually see a picture of Edward Gorey on the set for Dracula, uh, which you get a sense of what that looked like. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.